From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy, stories about Jewish food that are served guilt-free. Today on Schmaltzy, Susan Korn. Susan is the founder and creative director of Susan Alexandra, an accessories and homeware brand rooted in joy, creativity, and color. Last year, Susan took the stage at our Schmaltzy virtual benefit. In this episode, we'll hear Susan's story and our conversation in the studio. Here's Susan. When I was three years old, I noticed that my grandmother didn't have toenails. Why doesn't Ma have toenails, I asked my mom. And she said that when Ma was very little, something very bad happened to her. And that a man named Hitler made her walk through the snow for days on end. And that her toenails fell off and they never came back. So I knew when I was really young that Ma had been through something horrible. And that's why she was hard to be around. She was prickly and negative and aggressive. But she was my grandmother. And I loved her, and I was her Shana Poonam. I was her American dream, and she was always so proud of me. That's how she would say it in her thickly accented English. Hi, Susan. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, first and foremost, I wanted to say congrats on your new shop. Thank you. I always see you in the window yes. working hard. And yes. I never can stop and chat because you're too busy. Always doing something for the most part, usually. <laughs> <laughs> was opening in the Lower East Side and having your store there important to you? It was so important to me. First of all, I live in the Lower East Side and I work in the Lower East Side. And I was just like, this is where my business needs to be, When where the first store needs to be. It needs to be close to my life. And also the Lower East Side is such a historically important place for Jewish people. And I love that. I opened a shop where all the shmatas were sold for hundreds of years, and it felt really meant to be, to be on Orchard Street in the Lower East Side. It's kind of coming full circle. Totally full circle. You start the story with such a poignant scene, Mm -hmm. and your mom is explaining to you the Holocaust trauma, like both mentally and physically, that your grandmother Mm -hmm. had endured. Did you learn more about your grandmother's experience as you got older and matured? Or was that conversation with your mom where you left it? I think that the older I get, the more I'm able to really understand life in general and struggle in general. And it makes what Ma went through even more profound. I'm constantly finding new depths of understanding, but also knowing I'll never understand what it is to go through something so traumatic and terrible. Do you feel in a way that some of the weight of her experience is something that's been passed on to you? Absolutely. I think there's so many facets to that question because as Jews, we have very heavy epigenetics. We've all inherited trauma. You know, it's in our blood. It's in our psyche. And I think that the struggle that my grandmother endured, it is who I am and I'm a hustler and I work so hard and I think that if I'm really to break it down it's it comes down to a scarcity mentality that and I'm like where does that come from I grew up in Ohio you know I had a nice life really I did and so much I think is just what I've inherited in this this survival 
mentality and it helped me achieve great things, but it also is, there's downsides to it too, of course. I want to go back to this scarcity mentality, like how people might see you, you're a successful entrepreneur, you're beautiful, you're around town, you're creative. When you say scarcity mentality, what does that mean to you? There's never enough. I'm never enough. My work's never enough. There's never enough. Very physically speaking, I'm like, I don't have enough food. I'm always like overbuying or um, overeating. And I'm like, where is this coming from? This is not from this lifetime. This is not even my stuff that I'm carrying. And I think that other Jewish friends I know have felt this too. And there's the Holocaust. There was so much scarcity and so much fear. And I think that there's part of that in me. And it's always been that way for me. And part of my aesthetic is abundance and lots, like lots of color, lots of elements of design, lots of texture and lots of quantity. My store is packed with things. And I, I love that. And I realize that that's like a salve for the things that really bother me, which is scarcity. And it's, it's something I'm very afraid of. I would run through her Miami apartment and I, it was my museum. There were tchotchkes everywhere and her her closet was filled with candy-colored windbreakers and her jewelry box was overflowing with beads and pearls and that was incredible to me. I That was my passion. I loved fashion, even from a very early age. The, the crown jewel of Ma's apartment, of course, was her kitchen table, which was overflowing with fruit. Ma was a horrible cook, the worst. Her, her matzo balls were eight pounds. She, she couldn't cook to save her life, but she would always present you with so much fruit. And my favorite, my favorite of all of this was the half of a grapefruit with a ruby red cherry in the middle. That was her specialty, and I loved it. Are these images of her apartment and what, you know, how she decorated still really vibrant in your mind? Yeah. And I think that they totally molded my my sense of beauty. Um, you know, there's this word oifkipitz. And forgive my pronunciation, but um, oifkipitz is when a woman or man or anybody um, gets all dulled up and the hair is done and the earrings match the bag, match the nails, match the shoes. And Ma believed a woman should be oifkipitz when she left the house. And I do have this vision of her in like a fuchsia tracksuit with rhinestones. And it's no wonder that my art of choice is anything that makes somebody feel and look oifkipitz, earrings and bags and bedazzled this and that. And so I think that that really, really sculpted my belief about beauty and how people should dress for sure. And it sounds a lot like you think that wearing something can make you feel a certain way. It transforms you. What you put on your body transforms who you are. Absolutely. It makes you feel confident. It makes you feel pretty. It makes you feel ugly. I mean, you know, what we wear and the colors and the things we we choose to wear, it's transformative. I mean, I'm wearing like a really unattractive, clunky coat today because it's cold. And I'm like, I feel not hot in this. And it's fine. Like, you don't have to be hot every second of every day. But what you put on your body changes who you are. I love in your story when you say that you were your grandmother's American dream. Yeah. It's very relatable. What, as a child, what did you think that meant? And and what do you think that means now? I think that Hitler could not take what she created, which was my mom, 
I'm I'm first generation. My mom wasn't born here, and uh, to have a, an American granddaughter who has a store on Orchard Street in New York City, like wow, she really she really persevered. She really created, and I'm here, and I'm you know creating change or attempting to create change within my the parameters of my industry and it's her legacy it's my grandmother's legacy and I get to do this and I I didn't have to suffer like she did when you work in fashion or any job that you're like what's the point of all this like I'm just creating things like people don't need more things you have to do something with your day and I feel like what I'm doing with my day is trying to make beautiful things and create jobs and change the way that the industry does things and I do it to be in the shadow of woman who came before me and that's a privilege and that's pressure and there's also a huge part of me that I'm like I wish that she was here so I could show her this she would have been so proud at the store opening my god you know my parents are so proud so you always do it to make somebody proud if I can't feel it fully then I'm like at least my parents can reflect that to me yeah it's it's beautiful So Ma was always so proud of me and she was proud of me when I moved to New York City with a dream, with the dream to be in the fashion world. And I moved without a friend, without a dollar, without a clue. I thrust myself into this fashion world and I was immediately met with rejection after rejection. I wanted to be a part of Fashion Week. I wanted to be involved in it all. And I realized very quickly, you have to know somebody or you have to be connected. And it was a rude awakening. But yet I continued and I persevered and I decided I was to be a fashion stylist. So that was an interesting experiment. I recall that my breaking point was styling an up-and-coming teen pop star for the cover of her very first magazine. And I lovingly presented these garments that I'd spent weeks selecting, and I saw her face drop in horror, and tears rolled down her cheeks because she felt I was ruining her career with my stylistic choices. And I was like, all right, this is not for me. What was your vision or fantasy of what New York was going to be like? If everything was happening for you, what did you think life in New York was going to be like? I just had this visual and I'd had this this vision in my head since I was very little of myself as a designer with red lipstick and wearing like a flowy drapey black um, ensemble. Like I'd seen that <laughs> in like maybe a bob, but she... Wait, uh, a bob haircut? Oh yeah, for ah. sure. Like a kind of a 1920s black bob. Um, well, you and, have such beautiful long hair now. I know, and it's kind of blonde. <laughs> I made it that way. But, you know, the, the vision has changed a little bit. I didn't even know why I should be in New York. I just knew I had to be here. It was a magnetism, um, and I was really afraid of it, too. Um, and I'd say it was, like, genuinely harder, if not uh, as hard as I thought it would be. Um, 
and harrowing and horrible and depressing and difficult. So like all like my worst fears about New York were a hundred percent realized. What happened? Oh my God. I moved here with um, my best friend and we shared a studio and then she had to leave and I had to do this myself. And I lived in basically like a box in Brooklyn and I got fired from jobs and rejected. And I mean, the rejections were so numerous and so profound exhaustion and being broke. I mean, like all the things that New York can do. Terrible friends and like sinister characters and broken hearts. Yeah, you're nodding because you totally have been there. I mean, New York is a very tough place. Like people are not nice here and it's dirty and it's dark and it's scary. Like it is all those things. It's also like probably the most magical things can happen in the city more than anywhere in the entire world. The way that opportunity and connections are sparked here, I've never experienced anything like it in any other magical city I've been to. I couldn't have described it any better. Right. It's like when New York is sometimes bringing you down, there's just something that happens. You'll turn a corner Mm -hmm. and there'll be something happening. Mm -hmm. You'll go to see an amazing show. There will be something revealed and you're like, ah. Mm, Something revealed. I love that. How does it feel to finally be part of this industry that kind of was blocking you for so long, essentially, or that you felt like you couldn't get into? I think I still feel like a massive outsider. And I'm in the fashion industry, like fashion industry in quotes, but I really feel like I'm in my own bubble. But I think that the fashion industry is still the fashion industry. Now the, the curtain has been pulled back and I see it for what it is. It's not like as fabulous as it thinks it is, but there's so many amazing things about it and about fashion and about the fashion industry, but there's so much I, I still don't stand for. And that's why I don't feel like I'm a part of it. I feel like the charade is not something I stand for in the wastefulness and the exclusivity and the the same stories still exist, though so much has changed. And I I really feel like an outsider in that forever. I think I will. And that's why I was like, I'm going to have to open my own company for somebody to hire me, right? And that's what I did. And I think that that's the freedom and the beauty part of it. I get to change the rules for myself, at least, and the people within the constructs of the essay world. Mm -hmm. Well, One thing that you do so well, which I view as democratic, I think, is about how you use social media and especially Instagram. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Instagram has helped independent designers or more unique voices find a place in public life or in the world? A hundred percent. I mean, I wouldn't have a company without Instagram. I think now it's definitely moved on to TikTok and that's a brave new world for me. I'm not amazing at it. But I think that it gives a platform to people who don't have the backing and don't have the support or don't have the education in the fashion industry to really just create on their own without relying on anyone else. And that's what I did. I feel very lucky to have had Instagram as a tool for all these years. And what made you think to use it in that way? Or how do you think about it? I mean, it's a job now for sure. And I'm a addicted to it in a sick way. But I still find so much inspiration and I find so much connection via Instagram. And I think that's the best part about it. It came very naturally to me. And I I always just like use it as like an expression, a place to be, to express myself fully. And 
and that's what I still love about it is that there's so much you can just put yourself out there. So I sort of resigned myself to to working retail and I was so lost and I was so confused and I didn't know what my purpose was. And the thing that always kept me going, my art, I had to tamp down. So I was working this miserable retail job when I got the call that Ma had died. And that was that was an earthquake for me. My champion was gone. And I was like, what am I doing? I was wasting away. And I decided it's time to, it's time to grasp life just the way Ma did. And I threw myself into art. That was always my saving grace. So I immersed myself in classes. And the first class I took was a metalsmithing class. And metalsmithing is all about precision. And I am not about precision. So I failed the class miserably. And I would try to salvage the projects. I would take them home. I'd take home these, these messed up bracelets. And they cover them in paint and tchotchkes and rhinestones and beads. And I liked them. I thought they were kind of cool. And I would wear them. And soon people started noticing and asking where I got my my jewelry. And I was like, are you serious? Is this a thing? And people asked if they could buy it. And I was like, oh my God. So I started this new New York hustle, which was waking up at the crack of dawn and making jewelry. And then I'd go to my job and then I'd run home and I'd work all night long. And then I started doing craft shows and I would travel around the world just hawking my wear. And I would sit behind my jewelry, the, the stuff I had spent hours and hours working on and you know people would say horrible things it was tough they would they would remark at how ugly it was or how expensive it was and you know it was it was hard how did you deal with with all of this negative feedback and rejection at the time and also you know being young younger and how how did you reconcile with that it was like the you know I think that life is always a mirror and you always it sort of presents you with the things that you're repressing or not um not addressing and so basically all of the world the way I was perceiving the entire world was that I was I sucked and that I wasn't good enough and I couldn't get hired you know for all these jobs that I was like I can do this and obviously I wasn't meant to have that path if I had taken a job doing buying for Kierna Zabet. I remember I applied for that job and I wanted it so bad. I could say this about many places, but I wanted it so bad. I visualized it. I prayed for it. I knew I could do it. I know myself and I would have been complacent. And I mean, who knows? Maybe I wouldn't, but I probably would have stayed there forever and I wouldn't have started my own thing. I wouldn't, you know, the rejection just pushed me into a different path. I still struggle with rejection in every aspect of my life and I still like blame myself and you know that's that's something I sh- I need to see and be like it's not necessarily me this just wasn't meant for me and um New York is a huge reminder of that how do you deal still with this rejection or roadblocks or you know obstacles that come up it, it does get easier. It does. You kind of develop a callus, but, you know, it's a very familiar feeling. And it's, I think the thing that changed, that changes is that I have been there many times before. So there's a sense of trust that 
all right, this this company doesn't want to work with me. This co- person doesn't want to buy my stuff. This person doesn't want to be in my life. Um, it hurts. Like, it, it, it's bitter and it hurts, but you you do sort of just trust that it um, it's not meant for you. It sucks, but it's not meant for you. Something else will be there. It's opening you up for something else. It's really hard to, like, abide by those 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 words but you know that's the truth I think I really think so years passed and I continue to persevere and just just do my art and create and the the work evolves and changes and soon I can quit my my job this becomes my whole career my whole life and enough time had passed that I decided I'm in fashion. There's no, there's no gatekeeper. I decide that I'm in fashion. And I, I thought my, my declaration that I'm part of this world is to show at New York Fashion Week. I put everything I had into this show. I wanted it to be everything that I was not included in when I first moved to New York. I wanted it to be colorful and warm and celebratory instead of skinny models waltzing down a runway. So I rented a deli in lower Manhattan because to me, that's warmth, that's love. So I called in every favor. I used every cent. I used every drop of energy. I had all my friends on board and I decided to put on this spectacular production. And it's a blustery, cold February day, and I'm standing outside of the deli, and I'm like, what if it's a failure? What if no one comes? What if no one gets it? What if no one likes it? And my best friend stood next to me, and she put her hand on my shoulder, and she said, every woman who has come before you is with you, and every woman who will come after you is with you. And I walked into the deli with Ma at my side. And there are drag queens wearing candy-colored uniforms, and they're holding trays. And instead of, you know, food, they're holding my bags. And then there's, uh, there's music, and there's dancing, and people are crying, and people are laughing. And then there's a spread of food, and it's bagels, lox, cookies, and, of course, grapefruits with cherries in the middle. And it was a big success. And people were moved, and I, I did something I'm really proud of. And I know Ma would be so proud, too. The Deli Show. Like, bring me back to that moment and also how you came up with that idea and just paint me a picture of, of what was going on then. The first fashion show was at Baz Bagel, and I was very crystal clear that it was time for me to show during New York Fashion Week. I just was like, this is it. This is what you do. This is fashion, baby. And I was like, okay, what can I do that is very personal to me? Because I think that if you're not really touching into a personal place, whatever you create feels very emotionless. And emotion is such a big part of what I do. Everything is either meant to make you feel protected, safe, you're supposed to laugh. You're supposed to be moved. It, I needed to do something very moving. I was like, let me tap into my soul. And there's a lot of facets there, but part of it was Judaism. And I felt like I have never in, seen anything about Judaism 
in the fashion industry. And like the subtext is there was this one show um, by Jean-Paul Gaultier, which was very controversial, where he sent models down the runway with payas. And they were these like supermodels dressed as Orthodox Jews. It was very controversial, but and it's kind of genius. But he wasn't Jewish, so it's like kind of controversial. But I never felt like I'd seen Judaism presented in the fashion realm. And I was like, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. And what better way to bring my Judaism and my career together than to do a fashion show at a Jewish deli. I thought that was like so right. It just felt very right. Also, food is very important to me. And food is like never hand in hand with fashion. Generally, it's quite the opposite. And I was like, okay, I want a show where people are eating. I want to take this back to like dinner theater. I want people to be eating and drinking and cozy and comfortable and warm and taking in art and my creative expression. And so it kind of came together that way. Like quite literally, we had the models serving people food while holding handbags and while wearing jewelry. And we filled the deli cases that are usually filled with cream cheese and locks and sable. We filled it with bags and jewelry. It was kind of a dream world for me. This was like everything I stand for. And it was it was funny. Okay, last question. If you knew it was like your absolute last day with us in this world, Mm -hmm. what would be the things you would want to eat that day? And what would you be wearing? Oh, my gosh. Okay, amazing question, Amanda. Um, okay, I have a vision for what I'm wearing. Um, You're a person that would know the answer to this question like right away. You want to be like, oh, you know what? Let me think about that for yes. a second. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm wearing, and I have not found this actual outfit, but it's kind of um, a very um, micro pleated, like almost like a pleats please scoop neck top gold, long sleeve, and then the matching flowy pleated gold pants like very ethereal also comfortable and the last meal I think I would probably opt for something that my parents made so my dad makes amazing risotto and you know with a glass of white wine and my mom used to make this tuna noodle casserole and I would have that and with seltzer water with a lemon squeezed in it. I mean, that's what I'm saying now because I'm kind of craving those things right now, but it changes daily. I'd also love like a beautiful raw fish chirashi bowl, you know, with like all these little salads on the side. I'd love a whole grilled fish with Greek salad and lemon potatoes and hummus. I would do a Mediterranean moment. I would do a Japanese moment and then I do sort of a heartfelt parental buffet of risotto and casseroles. Oh, okay. And then there's dessert. So we'd have to do, ooh, there's this meringue strawberry dessert. Actually, I've had it at Contramar in Mexico. And it's like this like eight foot tall slice of meringue cake with strawberries. I know the one. Yes. They bring it around on the tray. Oh my God. Actually, I'd have the whole tray at Contramar presented to me <laughs> as, as a dessert. And like affogato. So like a lovely gelato with Espresso drizzled on top. I'd have a chocolate mousse with some sea salt on top as well. I'd have, okay, I'd have a pavlova. I'm really into pavlovas these days. Kind of like the meringue cake. Um, Yeah, there'd be an extensive dessert course, obviously. It sounds like an incredible day. Yeah, it'd actually be the best day. Yeah. My last day would be so good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you for ending on a sweet note. Oh, anytime. And thank you so much for joining us and sharing your schmaltzy story. 
Thank you for having me. This is really special. That was Susan Korn. Thank you for listening. I'll meet you back here next week. Until then, head to jewishfoodsociety.org for family recipes and much more. Schmaltzy is a production of Jewish Food Society, made with love in NYC. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get this show, so you don't miss any of the stories. Schmaltzy is produced and edited by Gal Shaya and Particle 3. Our executive producer is Nama Sheffi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. I'm your host, Amanda Dell.